0: We continue in our long series looking at God's mission plan revealed, which we have uh, summarised in that line, Shalom in the Sanctuary of God. The notion of Shalom, which is uh, that whole basket full of notions of uh, peace and flourishing and of prosperity and of wholeness and of restoration and of things being made good um, all those notions that are symbolised in the Garden of Eden. And we've come through both God's uh, act of creation through the two different accounts, Genesis 1, the first account, the big architecture of of creation and that which is placed within it. Genesis 2, which has been taking us to, placed in the garden through a narrative form, focusing more so on the key relationships within creation. Genesis 3 is actually the second half of that second creation narrative. So Genesis 2, Genesis 3 sort of mirror each other in the way in which it is structured. And we still have the man and the woman, um, which come to be known as uh, Adam and Eve, are located within the garden. And we finish Genesis 2 with all being well. Um, It wasn't good until the the woman was created, man, uh, the male, wasn't. Uh, sufficient for what was expected of humanity until the creation of woman, and have that a, pure last flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, my counterpart has been created to partner in this process, and they were in uh, such a state of trust with each other that they were naked but not fearful. Now, just to remind us that we are looking at um, a form of language which is. Um, comes out of the ancient Near East, these um, narratives that are used to explain deeper truths, to make sense of the world and why we experience the world the way it is. It's uh, not that different to what Indigenous people talk about by way of Dreamtime stories um, or, in, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in previous weeks, in New Zealand or in uh, Pacific, Um, And in many nations, some of those narratives that are used to talk about these are our origins, this is where we come from, this is what we continue to retain. As we come to Genesis uh, 3, a significant change of direction takes place. And it is important to see how this fits within the wider narrative. So there's two areas of background that I want to sketch before we get into looking at Genesis 3 as a narrative in itself. First of all, that this part of the narrative is not the beginning of the story. Sometimes when we are asked to explain what it is that uh, Christians believe and what the Gospel talks about, we start with, well, we're all disobedient. We start with Genesis 3. Actually, the biblical narrative locates that, in the wider context of God's creative purposes, what God has already been providing and doing and how we are placed within it. So that wider backdrop of God having already proved how awesome and powerful and creative in God's purposes in um, bringing light out of darkness, of bringing order out of chaos, of bringing hope out of despair, bringing... uh, fruitfulness out of that which is otherwise barren and arid. That background is so important to understand how God has already established his character and purposes. But the second background is particularly important as we come to look at um, uh, Genesis 3, and that is ancient narratives that were used to explain why we experience what we experience in life. Why do we have some days where things go well and other days when they are an absolute mess? Why does it seem that some days fortune shines upon us, God seems to shine upon us, and other days they just, one thing after another? Why is it that some people seem to flourish and have all the good cards dealt to them (laughs) in life and others get all the, the crappy ones? How do we explain all that? Well, in the ancient Near East, even before these Genesis accounts were established, so we're talking thousands of years by way of background, and even before the written forms, they are in oral traditions, storytelling. So these are very ancient forms of texts or, or narratives that we're working with. These other texts had other explanations of why some days things seem to go well and other days not so. There were explanations like that um, the gods had grumpy days and they had some less grumpy days. So if you strike God on a grumpy day, then you expect the storms are going to come and all sorts of uh, calamities are going to happen and it's because they're just in a bad mood and we just hope they get in a better mood in a few other days. That was one of the explanations. Uh, The other, if you've ever read um, one of the ancient, better known texts called the Epic of Gilgamesh, anyone actually know about the Ikema Gilgamesh, it's actually a a, a Ugarit one, that explanation was that the gods saying, you're all too noisy, we're trying to sleep up here in heaven, would you just pipe down, and if you don't pipe down, I'm going to be roaring at you to quieten down, and I'm going to send you a storm to quieten you. That was its explanation of of, uh, how life is. One of the most common ones, and it's actually true for many different cultures, is that you need to earn God's favour in some way. If you're having hardship, you've obviously uh, offended God in some way and you need to gain gain God's favour and make an offering towards God. And uh, you better hope that the offering is sufficient to uh, impress God and win God's favour, win God over. So the whole notion of bringing uh, sacrifices or doing a deal with God, you know, if I give you the, the best of my crops, if I give you some of my children to serve you in the temple, if I... Uh, give a a great gift in some way then maybe you'll start favouring me. Echoes of that are not that different in different cultures and times as well. Or it could be that you just need to make a petition to God. So if you're having a particular calamity you've got to find out which God is responsible for that calamity and go and make a special appeal to them. Many years ago when I was in Kathmandu and in the streets there, there's little um, shrines and things on the corner to different uh, entities who are responsible for different ailments. The one, and if you wanted to add a petition, you would hammer a nail in, a particular sort of uh, nail that makes an impression on that little shrine to make your petition known. You know the shrine that had the most nails in that I ever saw? It was the deity who was responsible for toothaches. <laughs> People were so desperate, oh, you know, if I bang in, please take away this toothache. So this sort of notion that in some way we need to sort of uh, earn our favour, we need to try and resolve the difficulties we're going through, is also not that far removed from the, the friends who gave advice in the book of Job. If you ever read the book of Job and you read all those chapters with all the advice of friends and of friends like those who needs enemies? Um, and you get almost towards the end and God says, no, they actually got it all wrong. <laughs> um, but they were saying, well, if you're actually experiencing hardship and calamity, what have you done wrong? Is your faith lacking in some way? Then uh, there's something obviously askew of your life that these calamities are brought upon you. This is actually our world too, isn't it? Against that backdrop, we have this narrative, which I, to be honest, would say is far more plausible, has far greater depth, and it, it leads us to a position of hope, of tr- rather than trying to bargain and do deals with God as though God can be won over in some way. The other great explanation is that there are multiple gods up in the heavens, and half of the calamities we experience on earth is because that God, that family of uh, divine beings has fallen out with each other and as they're having battles and that's all playing out in the, in the world that we experience as well. So let's hear this narrative over against those backgrounds as we go. So, chapter three. A new actor emerges into the narrative. The figure of a serpent. We're not told where the serpent comes from but we are told immediately that uh, they are not an equal and opposite power to the creator God. Right from the start, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent is a creature, a creature who's now rebelling against the purposes of God. A lot of the narratives that we hear about what there is to the hope for has a sort of a yin and yang approach to it, as though... There is a counterbalancing black and white, darkness and light and which prevails in the end is some way up in the air. A lot of the apocalyptic narratives that uh, some people get fascinated by anticipate some great battle and who's going to be the victor is also not clear. That is never reinforced in scripture. There is one creator God. God who has demonstrated the capacity to bring the world into being and God whose agenda is to take that creation as a project that will develop and grow into the new creation, that will reach its fullness in uh, the end of the beginning, at the end of uh, Revelation. That's what we've been touching on in recent weeks as well. So the serpent is not an equal power. It is, his, the serpent is uh, crafty and has a capacity to persuade and to delude people. And that's the danger we need to be aware of. So the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's a half-truth, isn't it? In fact, a lot of the things we need to be mindful of and aware of are half-truths. Just enough truth to be plausible, but just a slight twist that actually makes all the difference as well. And here it's just one word. It's the word any. There were trees throughout the garden that were designed to be cultivated and watered and flourished and harvested. And at the centre of the garden, there were two trees. The tree of life, which they are to feed on and to grow into and to find life and all that is life-giving out of it. They're welcome to have that tree. But the one tree that God says you are not to have is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree where God determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. It's a tree of claiming to know for ourselves to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong for us, so that one word has inserted a dangerous half-truth that, if believed, would create havoc in the thinking and expectations. So the woman who actually points it out: we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, "You may eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden." That is to say, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We must not touch it. Or you will die. It will lead to uh, the denial of life, for to do so is a rebellion against God. So, following that question of that half truth, the serpent now makes a statement that challenges God's narrative, challenges what God has said. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the knowing here is in a position to decide for yourself what is good and evil. We can see it horrifically, all too graphically, in our newsreels at the moment. And it was known in ancient times. Those who claimed to be like God became tyrants. The tyrants. Basically, worked on a maxim. Whoever has the biggest army, who is the most powerful, they decide what is right. Might is right. And if the person who has the bigger army says, I'm going to do this, then they just go ahead and do it. They don't care what others may say against it. Sadly, that is such a powerful dynamic in what is happening in the Ukraine at the moment. But it isn't just in those types of scenarios that we can see this dangerous truth playing out in our own thinking as well. It actually comes in our, our own uh, attitude towards life that we, we don't want to totally remove God from our lives. It's nice that God is there. But when it comes to some of those things where we know that God actually said, no, don't do that. Don't pursue that, don't make those choices, don't enter into that pathway of life because if you do, to paraphrase, it will end in tears or even more so it actually will be destructive. It won't be life-giving in that space. It is the desire to be God in our own world. Many years ago in uh, New South Wales when I was teaching scripture in a a high school class in one of the state high schools, I still remember a a lesson I used to do fairly often but on a particular occasion. And I would ask the class, what are all the things that are wrong with the world? Let's write them up. So it didn't take long to fill a whole whiteboard with things that are wrong with the world. Then I asked the question, well, of all those things which are caused by humans, or which are worsened by inequality amongst humans, or the way in which humans respond to them. And I reckon about 95% of the things on the board were either directly caused by humans, or exacerbated, worsened by human inequality. Um, So that, again, wasn't contentious. People looked at that. Then I gave them a challenge. I'll give you a brief challenge. I'll only give you about one minute to answer it if you want to, if you dare to. Um, and I'll tell you the best answer I ever heard I gave them the challenge I said okay if you were God faced with all those problems what would you do? They were like us Okay that's a pretty serious responsibility <laughs> Any thoughts on what you would do if you were God? classic answer I heard from one, one child who actually didn't have an understanding of the Bible narrative. He put his hand up and said you know, if I was God, I'd just send a great flood and just wipe them all out and start again. <laughs> it's intriguing. You see, if we want to claim to be like God the reality is we're not very good at it. In fact, whenever we have a, an attempt at being God in our life, almost invariably it doesn't end well and a lot of our narratives that tell us that we actually can control our life and if you want something you can do it you just got to be positive about yourself and you take it on actually causes a fair bit of stress because when things don't end, work out that way we think oh i must be failing in some way it must be my fault that i've you know, i've, I've caught, brought this upon myself the problem is is the false expectation you know, there's a couple of movies I saw years ago, that, was it Bruce Almighty? And I've forgotten the other one, where a figure was actually allowed to be God for a day or for a period of time, and they got overwhelmed with all the emails that are coming in. Um, this delusion that we are in any way able to be God is foolishness and dangerous. Yet it is not so far from our thinking that, yeah, we know that. But there's still parts of our life that we sort of want to be, maintain control over. We do put God in a back room somewhere and overlook God when we know that we are not wanting to hear what God is saying until we have a crisis. And amazing how we find the key to that room when we have a difficulty and we go back and knock and say and we start trying to do deals with God again. That is foolishness. That is the thinking behind the serpent at this point. So I'm guessing that we're not arguing with that uh, explanation of the world, but we need to ground it in the realities that life is experienced. Alexander Sholtsinitskin, a Russian novelist, historian, philosopher, and uh, someone who pushed back in the Stalinist regime, challenged Stalin and called him out, and uh, the Stalinist regime, <coughs> anyone who studied any history, was awful. It was uh, uh, brutality, it was paranoia, and it was um, violent and aggressive. And uh, Sholtsinitskin was arrested and put under one of, one of the gulags for a number of years in that space. Interestingly, <coughs> uh, Sholtsinitskin was born and grew in a faith of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. He went for a period in his 20s where he uh, renounced that and became an atheist. But during his experiences in the gulag, came back to the faith of his, his, uh, his childhood, of his origins in the Russian Orthodox faith. If anyone knows about how awful and brutal and evil that world can be, it's uh, someone like Sholtsinitskin. In the background against those realities, it's interesting how the language of evil has come back into our dialogue. In the 1990s, if you were in a university and you used the word evil in a paper or in a class, you would be laughed at. We no longer need that word. We've grown out of that language of good and evil. You wouldn't use it in political sphere, you wouldn't use it in a newspaper until, as I mentioned last week, 9-11 came along. <laughs> and suddenly these acts of terrorism that are totally unjustifiable, that come out of a, a deep impulse that is just evil that language is now all too appropriate and familiar sholostrynetskin knew that as we know it as well but he had a revelation in the gulag experience and i just want to take his quote because i come back to it time and time again it is so powerful gradually he says it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates within the, with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. It's interesting that Vladimir Putin was baptised in the Russian Orthodox Church and much influenced by his, I can't remember if it's his mother or his grandmother, and he still talks about that as actually something he retains. We can only hope against the the judgement and the accountability that there is a little bridgehead there that might soften his hardness at the present time. And even in the best of all hearts, there remain's an unuprooted small corner of evil it's impossible to expel evil from the world in its entirety but it is possible to constrict it within each person you see it's easy to go into the us and them narrative we can point to that nation those people that culture that person it's obvious that they are evil Remember, it was Jesus who said, Look in your own eye, first of all. We need to recognize just how easy and capable we are of just nudging that line in a direction that suits us. To begin to worship and to desire something which is not of God, but it is tempting for us to reach out for and to embrace. If we are to have any credibility, we need to hear this ourselves before we protest and intercede and reach out for others as well. So, as we continue in this narrative, the seeds of sin take root and this temptation, the desire to be gods of our own lives, to push God to one side, whether it's an act of of rebellion and rejection or whether it's more just we haven't quite got the time God. It's still rejection and it ends in tears. (laughs) We saw the hint of it at the end of our passage today. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and it led to fear and to anxiety. When they realised that they were in a space now where they had to take responsibility, that responsibility becomes anxiety inducing. The world around them becomes fearful. Next week we're going to look at those consequences as the narrative continues. And it's not a pretty story, but it is a hopeful story. Read against those other narratives of how to make sense of the world as we experience it, how to make sense of what we see in ourselves and in other people and the influences and the voices in our wider community. The, uh, the voices that seek to persuade us to go this way and that way as we experience it in life. I don't know about you, but I find this so much more plausible, <laughs> has such more profound depth to it, that I need to sit with it and to hear it and to find hope within it. Because this does not derail God's creative purposes. God's great mission plan continues But now a whole new element is needed and emerges, the element of salvation and of redemption and of reconciliation and of restoration and of transformation. That now becomes a central part of our narrative as well. May God enable us to sit before him to recognise that our sinfulness is not just what we do wrong, not just deeds, but our whole attitude towards God.